Hello, and welcome to episode number four of the Sanity Sessions, Exploring Mental Illness and Maladaptations. I'm your host, Clint Sabom, and my guest today is Dr. Sharam Hezmat, and we talk about death, the subject everybody loves and everybody tries to avoid thinking about. And why do humans avoid thinking about death? And what do they do to avoid it? And is the fear of death the core of all fears and all anxieties and even at the base of different anxiety disorders? Um, Is some degree of existential dread healthy? Uh, What daily practices can be done to buffer ourselves against the fear of death? Or do we even need to do those? Should we just look death in the eye? And these are the kinds of things we talk about. It's a really awesome episode. Uh, We get into some terror management theory, behavioral economics, addiction, decision-making, all revolving around the Grim Reaper death. So, hope you enjoy the episode. To start, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Sharam Hishmat, I'm a semi-retired faculty from University of Illinois in a public health program. Uh, my training education is economist, but over the year I became more fascinated uh, with psychology, especially emotions. And uh, so I was trying to understand the role of emotion decision-making because economists argue that people are rational, they're logical, but as you grow older, you have kids, you notice that that's kind of a fantasy. Uh, it's, uh, so I, to explore that, I decided to study addiction because addiction is such an extreme emotions and it's a kind of a, would maybe some of exotic behavior. And from that, I want to explore how these visceral emotion can shape people's behavior. And I still teach a class on addiction, and uh, I used to teach economics and, and all other courses. But mainly my purpose is addiction. And I have a blog on the Psychology Today that it focuses and it looks at addiction as a decision disorder. Uh, and, and so that's kind of a, uh, my basic training, my background. Okay, it looks at addiction as a decision disorder, a breakdown in decision making? Well, you know, it's, you, you think about that uh, when somebody is under cravings, extreme craving, and they do kind of focus only on the pleasing the craving withdrawal, and it could be at the expense of other things pursuit, or they may not go to work, or they may engage in illegal behavior, which is really harming their future self, and they just pursue one thing. Uh, from again the rational perspective that seems to be you know self-destructive behavior and to, to use a framework there's a field called behavior economics you might have heard which is melding economic addiction i kind of use that framework to kind of understand you know and i'm not a psychologist so i mean there's several people that approach addiction from different angles and so that was my kind of my unique approach. I'm not the only one. Other people pursue this field uh, in terms of, you know, the role of uh, decision-making, especially neuroscientists. They look at the brain and what happened in brain that 
you know, it's, it's, you know, people, a lot of people look at addiction as some sort of character flaw or, or, and so on. But in a way, it's like a, they're disabled in terms of decision making. And to help them sort of, you need to establish that uh, decision making so they can make better decision. So that's in a nutshell, that's the approach. Sure. And, and is it kind of like with the topic of death anxiety and existential dread, you kind of um, applied behavioral economics paradigms to that as well, to some degree? You know, the, that was the angle. I was kind of interested, what is the impact on decision making? How affect people's behaviors when they are contemplating this, as you said, existential you know, dread? anxiety and so in a way in a background everybody thinks about this especially as we get older uh, i'm a lot older than you <laughs> so that will be more on my mind or sometimes when people face um, you know chronic illness or uh, really uh, really bad health problem and especially these days with pandemic and I think that's a lot of people's mind. Uh, it, that's you know, it's, so that but to answer the question, that's sort of why angle was how this shapes our behavior and decision making. Sure, and there's there's an aspect of this that's really interesting to me because on the one hand, you've written some great blogs about kind of how to de decrease death anxiety and how to mitigate the fear of death. But at the same time, um, I see where you uh, talk about Buddhism and about actually all fear and all anxiety being the fear of death and confronting death head on can actually be maybe a powerful tool for decreasing anxiety and everything. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's what the Buddhism you brought up. I know I, I'm not an expert, but I've done some reading and they argue that if you accept death, that's liberating. And you can start enjoying life. Uh, that's easy. <laughs> you know, somebody like you that practiced this for a long time, maybe it comes a lot easier. But the thing is that as a human being, we are cursed by consciousness. We are aware of this. And, you know, we talked about intellectually. People always say, oh, life is too short. But I don't know. They really understand what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean to facing that mortality? Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's something that people avoid talking about this. I, I, I brought several times with friends. I noticed that they feel very uncomfortable. Uh, they, that's all they just say, you know, shallow and kind of superficial. Oh, we're all going to die. And they, they, let's move on. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, that's, that's interesting. I've had the same experience. You know, you try to talk to people about death and, and, and that, you know, they'll, they'll run for the hills. You yeah. know, people don't want to talk about it. But um, I guess that's a defense. That's a defense of like, well, I'm not going to die today. Probably not. So I'll just kind of put it off into the future. And I think that I did that a lot when I was young, and as I get older, it almost, I, I heard an interesting phrase that said, we know we're going to die, but we don't believe we're going to die. But I think as you get older, you start to believe, oh, wait, I might actually die. <laughs> well, there's a saying that you just, you said that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> that's good that's good i like that yeah so, yeah it, it it is and especially in the western culture perhaps this is uh 
they feel like death is an option. Uh, it's uh, right. It's, and uh, we do all kind of expanding. You know, you could think about the the amount of money goes to cosmetic in terms of Botox, stay young, eating white taking vitamins, and uh, doing all kind of things so we can prolong. And uh, uh, there are people that they pay. I read somewhere in Arizona or somewhere they pay a lot of money so they preserve their body. Someday they will come back. Uh, I don't know. You heard about this? Oh, oh, like freezing it? Yes, yeah. Yes, it's, yes, yeah. And and then maybe in the future, when they learn how to bring right. you back, you'll get brought back, right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and that's uh, very expensive. It's not cheap, <laughs> but it's just the people they. It's so hard. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of extreme behavior of avoiding this concept of death. Yeah, yeah. It 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 seems like, um, and then there's kind of like life extension supplements and all sorts of things. Um, but but anyway, maybe if you could talk a little bit about some of the things that do decrease. Well, first of all, like when you when you mention the word existential dread, do you think it's something most people deal with, but it's unconscious, or do you think some people may deal with it more than others? Um, what do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I started this reading Ernest Becker. Uh, he had a book on death anxiety. You know, he's an existential psychologist. And uh, there's sort of, the, now the current psychologists, they follow his framework. And the, he came out with this TMT, uh, Threat Management Theory. And the idea is that we're facing this anxiety. How do we manage this anxiety? But I think you're right. Not everybody feels the same way. I mean, there are obviously people that they feel more anxious. They have more anxiety. Probably they are more in their mind, not in their mind that they're unconsciously, but they're, because it, Ernest Baker also talks about that the most of the, and also in other psychology, Yellow, I guess I'm pronouncing right. And uh, he is specialized in it. He says that most of the uh, anxiety, it comes around that. That's the source of all of our anxiety. For example, take a hypochondria. Uh, and people go to healthcare. There's a big percentage of a primary care physician. They deal with people like this because there's, they're, you know, they're concerned something wrong with them. Uh, that they go say, but the, a lot of time they're not getting addressed. What is the real issue? They're going to see healthcare providers. So they probably say, oh, you're okay, you're fine, nothing going on, your blood pressure is normal or whatever. And then, you know, but that is still their anxiety in their mind, but it, it comes in, a, it manifests in a different form. So TMT, it, the theory of the uh, theory management theory says that what is it that people do when they are facing this anxiety, especially as they get older. One of the area is that one of the way we can shield ourselves is built-in self-esteem. Uh, and that sort of protect us. We feel like we're worthwhile. And, uh, and then what does it mean? How do we build self-esteem? As people go, get older, they want to be associated with the like-mindedness. And, and, and and this also could have a dark side because they become very prejudiced and uh, they don't want to deal with someone. They don't share their view, their ideology. And, uh, and that's a some, one way, that's what they, the, the main theme of this theory is. 
that that's, that's one way they reduce their anxiety. And in fact, you notice that there are a lot of places that I noticed that in Florida, they only accept certain people to that uh, nursing home or retirement center. For example, they are culturally, they're from s- specific culture, from India. And oh. then people kind of like that. They like to be with the like-minded people. Uh-huh. You know, I have a hypothesis. I don't know to <laughs> cannot be tested. I wonder now in the end pandemic, people become more polarized. Maybe further, that's there's a fear, and we want to be with like-minded people, and we don't want somebody questioning our, you know, views. And it certainly is comfortable, but I want. It seems like it's get intensified as we get older. Yeah, that's a good point about the pandemic, too. Like, with all this uncertainty, people cling to certainty more, and you see more people having political fights on Facebook and back and forth because we're clinging to certainty in the face of a lot of uncertainty. Right, right. If you feel comfortable, because if somebody's saying something that is completely against my view, and I will get threatened by that. But if I kind of all surround myself, you know, I live in uh, Evanston, Chicago. It's a very liberal community. <laughs> and, uh, and people will probably feel very comfortable. You know, there is no opposing me or whatever. And, and it could be another community. It could be the opposite of that. But uh, it is. And other things that it, the TMT argue is that when we are facing uncertainty and fears, we are more attracted to strong leaders. Uh, okay. And, uh, and, and I wonder, you know, a lot of countries, you know, to say when they climb up a difficulty, maybe give birth to these strong leaders, because these are the leaders will save us. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and that's another, you know, behavior or whatever that's, which, you know, it's the kind of a dynamic behavior, uh, but it's obviously we have a taste for that. We want somebody to protect us. We tell us everything's going to be okay. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's kind of led to a whole lot of um, these kind of right-wing populists in different countries getting elected, and you're seeing more and more of that. And then, But then it's almost like we need the strong man to protect us, and then it's like we get scared of the strong man, and then we vote him <laughs> out, you know? So it's fear multiplied back and forth. Right, right, right. It's, uh, you know, as I, as I said, not everybody would share that, but there are tendency that we want to cling on the strong people that, that sort of a protect us. And uh, so, I mean, that in a macro level, this could be taking place. I mean, you look at this Middle East and uh, Turkey and all that, they have very strong leaders and uh, or China and, uh, and the people sometimes feel comfortable with that. I mean, maybe Americans' culture is different. They've never been, you know, quite comfortable with strong leader. And uh, that's maybe that has a different history uh, here. So, Yeah, you know, with, with terror management theory, is there a practice they recommend, like looking at photos of death a lot? Do they recommend something like that? Well, one of the things I recommend is really helpful, and I find myself personally useful. It's a pursuit meaningful goal in life. Uh, because when you are facing limited time, uh, you know, when we're young, we just, when I look at my children, they always plan it. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Well, when you're facing, I'm 65, you're facing limited time. You say, what is that really important to me? 
And, and I think that makes people's life more worthwhile. You know, we have limited time, scarce time, and uh, we're more motivated intrinsically uh, that I really don't, I mean, you know, of course you have, hope, assuming you have a comfortable life, you know, and then you do things that is really meaningful to you, whatever that is. Uh, you know, some people pursue religious, uh, some people pursue science, and some people pursue helping others. And uh, but that's how people really make their life. I mean, and you look at the elder people; they do that. They a lot of them they volunteer, and it makes them healthier, uh, rather than just kind of you know, obsessed with anxiety, what's going to happen to me when I die and all, all sort of thing. So that's one of the things that comes out of this. And, and of course, there's a school of thought that they have a perspective on this. And for example, Stoic philosophy argued that, uh, you know, if there's nothing you could do about it, it's crazy to worry about these things. And you only worry about what can you do. Right, right, right. And sometimes dividing that, that those two groups can be a little bit tricky, you know, because it start, I start to look at like what you can control versus what you can't control. And sometimes it just, it all starts to seem like I can't control. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, you're right. That is, you know, it's it, in a philosophical, it's a, such an abstract concept because the sense of agency, you know, I can do this. Uh, but that differs from person to person. What, what I'm available to do or are not able to do, maybe it's available to you could do it, but I'm not able to do. But I guess they're talking about in the realm of you know, whatever that person can do in this space, the whatever that person. And then they're not worried about other things. As I said, these are very easy to talk about than really practice. But, but of course, the, these concepts, these ideas is very powerful and can be a guidance to lead our life. Uh, yeah, so getting into all of this, is there, um, what about the, the ultimate question in decision-making philosophy, uh, the question of free will? Is free will like something we just kind of pretend to have, but we don't really have? I mean, I've seen neuroscientists go either way on the question. You know, it, it's, there are psychologists, that's a good point you mentioned, you know, the neuroscientists, they've, they've questioned that. In fact, there's also evidence for that, that it's, it's illusion, the free will. But in, in the realm, in the, in the field of uh, even psychology, because they, you need to have a free will to get out of these uh, terrible trap that they are. And the study shows that the, if they believe in that, doesn't matter what exists or not, let's forget about that. If they believe in that, that's really helpful. It helps them, you know, I mean, that's what a lot of therapies, they do that. They say, you can do it. It's all up to you. And uh, if they believe they're very successful in uh, quitting their addictions. Oh, okay. So with addictions. Yeah, but addiction. About, yeah. I'm not sure in the context of the death, what, what do you, maybe you could elaborate on that. How would that apply, the free will to anxiety of death? Um, wow, that's a, that's a big question. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I was thinking that um, I, I, I would almost think that you, you could decrease death anxiety in a sense by surrendering control. I mean, because it's in a sense, I, I'd almost go the opposite way with the fear of death. I'd almost think like, well, if you can, 
if you if you really pride yourself on controlling things and you're obviously not going to be able to control death then there would be a tension there that might increase death anxiety whereas if maybe you accepted there wasn't really free will i'm just acting as if i have it then death wouldn't be as big of a a, a source of conflict maybe perhaps the semantic i mean i know reading the buddhism literature they talk about ego and maybe that's what that you know i mean buddhism talk about that they say if you die every day and then you know if you accept death you don't have to worry about uh you know that they said that you know you die every moment and you wake up in the morning you're alive so you practice that every day in a way you get rid of the i mean that's why you're getting into attachment and i think one of the anxiety comes we have so attached to life and object and when they say that you're going to die, it means that we're going to be separated from all these things we have. And by maybe practicing that, you know, like you said, I'm free from all these attachments and that reduces anxiety. Uh, is that something you were probing? Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, it, it's kind of like if you if you really kind of accept that you're going to die, and I guess there's different levels of that, like you would, you could know it intellectually and still not accept it like on a deep level. But I guess if you accepted it on a deep level, then, you know, the day to day losing $20 wouldn't really matter, you know, because, right, you right, know, right. you're just glad to be alive because you know, you've accepted the end. So the lesser, it's like, it's like getting the core attachment removing the core attachment almost like is a Goidian knot that pulls the whole thing open. But the question is, how do we do that? And I think I would, you just raised question. I was so curious when I was reading yellow that the, the existential psychologist is it uh, psychodynamic. And he was talking about the exposure. He said, like, as exactly what you say, he said, we need to be exposed every day. And how we expose to death, he said, write your own uh, funerals. I mean, it just kind of uh, uh, imagine, you know, invite people to read eulogy about you. Or uh, it's uh, the practices, read obituary every day. And uh, I think by practicing this, you confronting this, I think perhaps reduces fears. Uh, as you know, opposed to, I don't want to talk about these, uh, but if you kind of deal with this on a daily basis, I, I miss, I, I read somewhere that people work in funeral home, they have a less anxiety about death. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, because you know, they, uh, they confront that every day. Uh, I have a personal story. Uh, <laughs> uh, you could probably either delete or whatever. It's up to you. I don't care. Uh, I was divorced, my ex-wife, and started working for a funeral home. And, uh, and you know, she would, after three years, I noticed that she's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm from Iran and uh, I'm, I'm really religious and she was very Catholic. And all of a sudden she brought this idea where we have a cultural differences. And I thought, well, we married 20 years. You never questioned this. And I was all, I think that's how it started. I became so curious. Why, what, what the impact of that on you? That working in funeral home, because they face death every day and they see it. And I wondered that triggered some sort of anxiety 
And I, I don't think so that led to our divorce. <laughs> More other stuff. You never but know. Was, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but it was interesting. After 20 years, she told me that we have a cultural differences. And that was what? <laughs> so I, we knew this long time ago. <laughs> so, but, but how did the cultural differences have to do with death? The religion thing? Well, I was wondering that TMT, that when, when she was facing these anxiety, it's say, okay, this guy is so different. I want to be around people that like me. And I, I don't know. I mean, I mean just kind of. Oh, you know I see. I mean? Oh, I gotcha. The, the uncertainty yeah. of death and the yeah. blooming of death made her want to cling hard to certainty and people from the same culture. Same right. way you mentioned that nursing home in Florida with only Indians, for example. Right, right, right. Indians, yeah. or, or, or sometimes they're all artists. There are uh -huh. places that that's all they accept artists. You have to be musicians. and. Uh, oh, interesting. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the people study this also for commercial purposes. <laughs> they're, they're kind of trying to apply TMT, you know, how do we design institutions to reduce, because that will be attracted to a lot of people. And, yeah. Because, you, know, you know, if I'm a 70 years old and I have these ultimate death, I mean, who do I want to be around? You know, obviously, I don't want somebody question my things I've done in the past because that will make me more anxious but if somebody says oh you know we believe the same thing we have this similar taste uh you know maybe we eat uh certain food that do you know and as well us also it's this goes to nostalgia too people become very nostalgic and in a way that's a good things uh and i think by living that kind of community it's also that nostalgia that's, you know, kind of connecting you to the past, all these good memories, rather than these, these really strange ideas that you have to confront. And it, it just makes life more easier. So. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, in a sense, it's also kind of hiding. It's also kind of not confronting. It's kind of buffering. So Absolutely. I could see it backfiring, too, you know, because of that like a, a, a form of pleasant denial. You, it is. You, no, I never thought about that. That, that could be part of a distractions. Uh, you know, it's at least, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to think about these things. And, uh, but, but then one of the things I've read about these pandemic, a lot of elderly, they die. It's, they're so detached. You know what I mean? It's maybe that attachment and uh, sort of connections helps them uh, boost perhaps, you know, their psychological resources. And uh, because, you know, one of the things that with reducing death anxiety, TMT suggests it's a connection with people. It's, it's so crucial that you see that older people always, they want to get back to their family and uh, they talk about their grandchildren and uh, uh, sometimes they think about their legacy. Uh, it, it, that those, maybe that's the, the social connection is the key here. Sure, sure. And then the, there's also, I guess, you know, just the beliefs and the afterlife. I read this one interesting thing from... Um, Carl Jung, um, and the psychologist, and he said something to the effect of, well, for the second half of your life, you know, which I'm probably entering now, uh, the second half of your life, um, regardless if there is an afterlife or not, 
it makes you function better if you can believe in an afterlife because it's kind of like living in a house if you know the roof's going to cave in one day you're going to be a little on edge but if you know the roof is going to hold up forever you can just relax and live so there's a psychological advantage to believing in an afterlife maybe even a really good afterlife well you know you, there are evidence for that that religious people tend to be suffer less anxiety than uh, secular, uh, that I mean, they sort of believe in afterlife. I was talking to a couple of people and they were very religious. And they, I said, what do you think about COVID? They said, you know, when the time comes, we die. And I, they were very stoic about that. And of course, this is anecdotal experience. I don't know to what extent it's prevalent, but it does kind of provide protections uh, that they, they, they believe that, I mean, it may not be easy for a lot of people to do that, but as that, that, that's the protective. In fact, TMT talks about this. And so, and there are evidence for that. Yeah, yeah. And for I mean, most it, people, I think the anxiety comes, they don't know where they're going. And I think that's the unknown. Sure, um, yeah. And, and, and I also kind of thought like the kind of Western religions that have a view of heaven and hell, that could almost be lessings. In a sense, I almost think that's that, uh, well, what not the hell part, but the heaven part could be, could help decrease anxiety more than say the Eastern part that believes in reincarnation. Because everything I've seen about reincarnation, um, and it, it, that may be true. That may be what we're all looking at. But in every, um, you know, paradigm of it or account of somebody remembering past lives, um, the evidence seems to show that, like, you don't really ever remember it, you know, and you're somebody else anyway. So it's kind of it's almost kind of like the end anyway, because you're, you know, if you're reincarnated and you're in a new body and a new person and I forget all about Clint and I'm just somebody else, it's kind of, I don't know. I can't really wrap my head around it, but it, it almost just seems like it might as well just be the end. Right. Right. You know, it, it, it was interesting. I was uh, a couple of weeks ago, New York times, an article, uh, it says the title was what is death defining death. And uh, he kind of similar argues that he said, you know, we really don't die kind of reincarnation because every molecule, whatever we, our, whoever we interact, they are part of us. And uh, in a way, you know, it perpetuates itself. I mean, I'm sure if you remember, you got a lot of things from your parents. <laughs> I have some habits, you know, from my father. Maybe I'm losing hair just like him even though he died a long time ago, but in a way he's still alive in me and then kind of passing on to my children. Maybe, I don't know, that's kind of similar to what you're getting. Uh, it, it, in a way you're right. It is kind of reincarnation, that metaphor, whatever it is. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. And that also kind of reminds me of the principle for physics. I don't know if it was Einstein, but you know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed, you sure. know? So the energy's here, it's going somewhere you know but but i think that the the curious thing is that um to look at the other side of death too which is birth you know and it's kind of like 
most of us would rather not die and aren't really choosing to die, but we didn't choose to be born either. You know, it's just like all of a sudden I'm a little kid running around. What's this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, grown up in Iran. I mean, I was 20 years when I came here, uh, I wasn't Muslim, you know, I mean, my parents, I mean, we were Muslim as a culture, everybody is, so everybody never practiced, but they always told us that everybody else is going to hell except us. And uh, when I talked to other religious, they felt the same way. I said, well, wait a minute, that's how that's possible. And uh, it's going to be a very crowded place. <laughs> right, right. With, with a lot of people that have done some really interesting things with their life, too. You know, <laughs> a lot of great minds in this hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, children can also have a death anxiety, but they will never articulate. You brought this up. I, I mean, I remember my, I noticed in my son when they were in certain age, they were always talk about this. And I, of course, I didn't, didn't have a tools or resource. I didn't know why they're so curious about this. But reading the literature, they, they said that kids can be very curious about that. Well, I remember actually when I first kind of realized that I was going to die because I think when I would hear of death for a while as a kid, I would think like you only died if there was an accident, like if there was a car accident or if it was just some crazy disease. So like you only died like if something went wrong, otherwise you'd always be alive. Yeah. And I remember, I remember beginning to realize it and asking my mom, you know, like, wait, you mean even if everything goes okay in my life, I'm still going to die, you know? And, and I think her answer was something like, yeah, but that's a long time from now. You don't have to worry about it now, you yeah. know, and you'll go to heaven. So, you know, that's just nothing for you to occupy yourself with now. Right. You know, and, and I remember th that, that actually did kind of calm me down, uh, a, a bit. Um, it's interesting f to first learn something that heavy and to not be too thrown off by it. It's just like, Oh, I didn't think I'd ever die. Now I realize I'm going to die. Oh, okay. What's for dinner? You know, like, it's interesting that what triggered that right, as a child, why all of a sudden you, you thought about that? Uh, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. You know, like, you know, in my case, uh, especially happens a lot. My dad young, very young, and it was very tragic, a car accident. So I was 12 years old. And I think that was sort of, it happens with kids when their parents die early, because that's such a, it's a shattered their world, their, their security. And uh, so maybe perhaps that's, I was always curious about this. And uh, because you, you, all of a sudden you notice that, my God, it's, people can die. It's uh, like you said, you know, your mom told you that, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be for a long time. And, uh, but you never had that experience. That was interesting. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, I mean, I don't remember it too well, but something well may have triggered it. I mean, I may have heard of, somebody's granddad or grandmother um you know dying and i asked like well, what did they die of and the answer was just old age and all of a sudden i was like old age what you can just die by getting old enough you know like and then all of a sudden 
switched on, you know, um, right. I'm, not, I'm not sure, but, um, yeah, but, but I mean, it's good to, it's good to run into you, um, and have you on and talk about all of these things. Cause like you said, you can't, you know, there's a lot of smart people I know, but they, they're not really into talking about death They're you know, and I, I think with COVID I have been thinking about death anxiety and, and death, uh, a lot more, you know, um, it's, it's strange. I turned, I turned 44 last September and I don't think I really, really ever felt old at 30, at 35, at 40, but then all of a sudden at 44, for some reason, it's just like, whoa, time's kind of running out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could, it could also be a midlife, you know, sort of <laughs> questioning, you know, uh, the purpose in life, but these are healthy things in a way, you, just because you say, hey, you know, it's... Uh, I'm a middle age, and of course you're not middle age. Middle age these days are 50, 60. Or, yeah, I kind of moved back, right? Yeah, moved yeah. Back. <laughs> uh, But uh, yeah, it's it. You know, it, 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 to be honest with you, I never chose this topic. The topic chose me. I, you know what I mean? It's it's sometimes we wonder. People say, "Why did you study this?" I don't know. I just you become curious and uh, you want to explore this. But uh, Clint, you're the only one I'm talking this. Most people will never spend even a few minutes discuss about these things. Uh -huh. Unless they are really facing, you know, death. Uh, even dead, those people don't want to talk about. When I was talking to my friend, he was dying from cancer. He kept saying that, oh, I'm going to make it to 80. I'm going to beat this. And I tried to probe this that how do you feel about this? He said, you know, I'm fine. And I noticed that he's very uncomfortable to talk about that. And he was, you know, it's uh, after five months, he was gone. And so maybe you, I think you're doing a service, perhaps starting conversation and people perhaps pay attention to this. Uh, it's, it's in everybody's mind. We're all gonna die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um... That reminds me of another antidote I had uh, with my grandmother, and it was my grandmother. It was probably about three years before she died, and you know, I asked her something. I don't know if I was like morbid, like Granny, how do you feel about death? It's getting close. I I don't know if I said that, but somehow the topic came up, and she goes, "Well, I just don't want to go to hell." And I remember thinking, like, she grew up Christian with a kind of probably traditional conservative belief that if you believe in Jesus, you're saved from hell. She continued to say she believed in Jesus, and that would save her from hell. But once she gets close towards the end, all of a sudden, she doesn't believe the positive aspect of the religion. It's just the negative that takes over, as if what she's been hearing about Jesus saving you doesn't really count, and there could be a loophole, and she could be sent to eternal hell. So it's like she's only she's giving like just power to half of the equation, and, and I didn't really... Um, I probably didn't answer it in the best way, but I said, well, no, you know, nobody goes to hell. There is no hell. 
that is a fascinating what you just said. It's a very interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's it, it's like even within the closed context of the religion, like her fears not really making sense, you know. But but I think that that happens with religion, and that's what turns people off from certain religions. They start to think like. Well, if a loving God is actually sending lots of halfway decent people to hell, uh, the whole thing's scary, you know, and then they ditch it. Right. Well, you know, my mother was very religious. I mean, she used to pray, you know, with Muslim as they pray, whatever, five times. And, uh, but she was, as getting older, she was very afraid. She would never think about death. She would just say she was afraid that her blood pressure is high and maybe something wrong with her. She was afraid to be alone. And when I look back now, I mean, this was 20 years ago, that she was suffering from, even though she was, you know, a very religious person, uh, that, 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 that there's something about the anxiety of this death that it, it really disturbs their mind. And, but it, it's very unconscious. They're not articulating. And they're just manifesting some uh, symptom. A lot of times become very physical, somatic. And it may not be psychological. You, they'll show some sort of behavior. Uh, and some people, by the way, resort to addiction. We never talk about that. Right, right. Which, I mean, in, a, in you know, we usually hear the negatives of addiction, but you know, in a sense, it's like a song comes to mind, like eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, right. it's like, let's just go ahead and feel good and drink right. it up now because right. um, we're going to end up dying anyway. It's almost like a good argument for becoming an addict. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah, you're right. right. Why not? You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're going to get old and die anyway. And, you yeah. know. What's, well, what, yeah. what's one line going to do? Well, I don't know. You saw that movie, Shuklat, and uh, she's elderly. She suffered from diabetes, and uh, she eats sh chocolate. And uh, the granddaughter said, well, aren't you afraid you're diabetes? What do I care? I'm dying anyway. <laughs> so you're right. Yeah, it, they kind of give them a license that, hey, I'm going to just... <laughs> uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think my my grandmother again back to my my grandmother she smoked all her life and she lived to be uh 90 wow. and yeah and um and and she was overweight and she ate a whole lot of eggs and bacon and sausage so so you know who knows but good genes but she got to be you know in her 80s and she she said the doctors quit telling her to stop smoking. They said, you have as many cigarettes as you want, you know, enjoy every last one of them. Um, but then it was kind of ironic because she got a little bit of dementia and she forgot she smoked and stopped smoking. <laughs> you, you know, the evidence shows that people, Alzheimer, they, they forget about that because, you know, the, the craving is all about a memory. Right. And they lose their memory. They don't have any more cravings. That's interesting. You just said. Yeah. But then there's opposite too. There are a lot of people. They do everything. They're so healthy. They don't drink. They, they don't smoke. They exercise. And then that happens. Uh, it, it's just, and I wonder if that's a fear of death that they're constantly engaged in this kind of behavior. That, you know, by exercising, doing all kinds of things. And then, 
you know, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be safe. So, you know, it, it's very interesting. <laughs> this, this topic is such a complex and is so, <laughs> you could really exhaust it. It, it could be a days and you know, forever just discussing about these issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is fascinating. But um, anyways, uh, we can wrap it up. But okay. um, thanks so much for okay. talking to me. I very much enjoyed it. And I'll obviously, I'll send you a link when um, when it's posted and let you know so you can tell your millions of followers <laughs> you were interviewed on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Clint. Nice talking to you. Good talking to you too. Take care. Okay. Good luck. All right. Good luck to you. Bye-bye.